0: We are back into the book of Nehemiah this morning, so if a Bible, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter nine. And as you're turning there, one thing I uh, came to recognize this week through study is it's very easy in life to accumulate things. Have you found that to be true? From clothes to cars to children and money. Uh, Dirty dishes accumulate in my home, and so does dirty laundry. In fact, do you have that issue in your house? My wife and I talk about this on a regular basis. How is it that we have this many dirty dishes for six people? Or why is there so many dirty clothes at this time? Accumulation happens whether we're aware of it or not, and whether it's good or not. What about the accumulation of sin? Have you thought about that this past week? Think through the course of your life and consider the adding up, the the piling up of your transgressions, moment by moment, day by day, and imagining that as a large mass, as deep as you can picture, thick as you can imagine. Think about just this last week and that deep, Dense mass hanging over your head, ready to crush you at a moment's notice, and and the only thing stopping it is the mercy of God. When we come to Nehemiah chapter 9, we come to God's people reading God's Word together again and now comprehending the accumulation of their sin, of their people's sin, as they look at God as they view him, as they see him as he truly is and what he's done. And there's a steady pattern that you'll find if, if you've read through the chance, if you've had a chance to read through the chapter, you see that they remember God, all that he's done for them, and then they see their failure, and then they cry out for mercy. And, and that seems to happen over and over and over through those 37 verses. And why is this important for us to consider this morning? Friends, if you're a sinner, you will identify with this passage this morning. If you have seen your sin accumulate like piles of laundry in a bottomless sink of dirty dishes, this chapter will resonate with you. This chapter is for Christians who still sin. If you don't sin, I would love to talk to you later because I think you might be confused or blind. Here's the main idea this morning. God's word brings awareness of God's character and leads us towards proper confession. God's word brings awareness of God's character and leads us towards proper confession. This chapter we'll walk through this Old Testament story of God's rescue of his people over and over again, and there's a number of points as you see on the screen, six, as we walk through this. So if you had lunch plans, you'll get to them, don't worry. How did we get to chapter 9? If you've been here through our series, you saw a couple of weeks ago in chapter 8, God's people were ready to hear God's word again, and so they call for God's word to be brought before them. And as they hear God's word, they begin to mourn over their sin. Have you ever felt that before in a situation maybe that, that God's word comes afresh upon you in certain situations where it wasn't necessarily appropriate at that point, at that time, at that moment, to deal with it? And so that's really what chapter eight is. The leaders tell them to wait because there would come a time where when confession repentance would need to happen and so that's the time now, chapter nine. Three and a half weeks later, from chapter 8. And in, and in this chapter, it preserves for one of us Scripture's most detailed prayers of confession. In fact, this is uh, the longest recorded prayer in the Bible, Nehemiah chapter 9. And it's a suburb example of how we should use the Bible, God's Word, in our prayers. The Bible is, is given to us not only to learn about God, but to give us fuel and understanding and how we should talk with God. And as you see as you walk through this chapter and you will see because we'll cover this chapter in its entirety they're praying God's word back to him. So, look at verse chapter 1. Or sorry, chapter 9 verse 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chennai, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadamiel, Bani, Hashabaneah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, Pethaniah said, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Let's pause. As we saw in chapter 8, Confession and worship breaks out when God's word is read before God's people. And they desire here to stand up and bless the Lord, to praise Yahweh. To praise someone is to speak well of them. And God's people are going to speak well of their God by rehearsing all that God has done with them and for them. And so they begin with number one, his creation. And it starts just in verse six. It says, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. See, so God has no rivals. They, they begin with God recognizing him as their creator. And, and that's the beginning of their confession of sin in this chapter. And they recognize, and we need to recognize, and remember again, that no one sins in secret. Because God, our Creator, sees everything. He cannot help but see all. He, he rules over all. He made everything. What do I mean when we when I say sin here? The Westminster Shorter Catechism says: sin is any want of conformity unto unto or transgression of the law of God. Sin is defined uh, by reference to God's law, to his word. Sin is breaking of, of God's law. Sin, simply put, is wanting something more than God. And friend, if you're comfortable in your sin, then you are desensitized to the one who has created you. You need to understand confession. See, confession... Is the occupation of the Christian. The word confession in Hebrew comes from the root that means to throw or to cast off. It means to throw your sins toward God in order to get them away from you. And that's what it looks like. That's what confession looks like. And the most healthy way to confess your sin is to be specific. It's not saying, God, God, you know that I'm a sinner and I've done lots of bad things. I'm not going to really list them all. Just forgive me. Does God know what you've done? You better believe he knows. So it's not that he needs a list, per se, but we sure need to name it. Confession of sin is making an effort to pinpoint exactly what you're sorry that you have done recognizing what you've done. And when we admit what the sin was and face the reality of that sin, only then can we turn from that sin. Furthermore, this is exactly what is needed when you confess your sins to one another in this life, in relationships. Being general with confession makes it difficult for the one who is to, who's to forgive you, to know what they're forgiving. So we should be specific J.A. Moyer, one of the commentaries that I read regularly, says this, if we are to appreciate the wonder of God's forgiveness, our sins need to be identified as the distinctly individual, personal, and damaging transgressions they really are and not mechanically lumped together in some ritualistic phrase at the beginning of a formal prayer. We must name them honestly before God as we ask that they might be washed away. And only in this way we will admit their seriousness and acknowledge our shame. Now, will we remember every sin in those moments? Probably not. That's why David's prayer in Psalm 139 is there. David says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. When we pray and to ask God for clarity in our sins, he won't hide them from us like it's a game. God will be faithful, and He will show us. He he wants us, He desires for us to live holy and righteous lives. And a God who created everything out of nothing can do anything. He is our Creator, and so we should be going to Him in prayer for all things. And so they rehearse very quickly in verse 6 that God is Creator. Next, they rehearse His covenant, number 2. So from Yahweh and creation, they moved to Abraham. Look at verse seven. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. So that's Genesis 11 and 12. And then, and gave him the name Abraham. That's Genesis 17. And then verse eight. You found his heart faithful before you. And that's Genesis 15. And you might say Genesis 15 is about about Abraham believing the Lord and his faith being reckoned to him as righteousness. and You're correct. But Nehemiah says here, you found his heart faithful. So how do we resolve this? There is simply no way to be faithful to God unless you believe in him and what he says. In other words, you won't do what he says unless you believe that what he says is of the most importance. Abraham was being righteous by his works because... He believed in God. It's also significant, if you notice this as I listed out the references, that they don't put things in this chronological order that we have in the book of Genesis. Now what we have here is them arranging things theologically. God chose Abraham and then gave him the name Abraham and he found his heart faithful. So this passage goes from Genesis 12 to Genesis 17 back to Genesis 15. And now the rest of verse eight there Says he made and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite and Hittite and Amorite and Perizzite and Jebusite and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. You remember back in Genesis, Abraham cutting the animal in half and the smoking pot and passing through in the pieces? That's this covenant. And God has kept his promise. This is what God does friends. God keeps his promises. If you in this world have been looking for someone who will never break their word, who will never disappoint you no matter what, you need to stop looking on earth. Look to God. I say to the married people here, the married people that are here, so many of you are expecting your spouse to be your savior in subtle ways, without even speaking those words, you kind of react that way, you kind of think that way. And they cannot be your savior. They will fail you. They will sin, they will need to repent, and they will need, learn, uh, need to learn your trust, earn your trust again. Friend, if you're wanting someone who will never fail you, who will never have to come back in repentance and ask for forgiveness, If you're wanting someone who will always do the right thing, you have to look to God. Single people that are here who desire to be married someday, that is a good desire, friends. But if you cannot grow to understand this about your God, then you will continually look to try to find this in a person, in a spouse, to do this for you. And people are lousy saviors they will never satisfy this for you, friends. Only God can keep every promise. So look to Him and trust in Him and learn that single people before you find a spouse. It'll make marriage a little easier. Did you notice in this passage here that God is the subject of every action in these verses? You chose Abram. You found his heart faithful. You made with him the covenant. You have kept your promise. See, that the, the, the emphasis is totally on God. God is the one who has done this. God is the one who acts first. He has to be, because if it was up to us, friends, we would still be in our sin. God is faithful to his people, and he will be faithful in his compassion Number three, the subject of every action and the next point is, is solely on God. We'll see it again and, and just think through this as we walk through these verses. Look at verse nine. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws and good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in and possess the land that you have sworn to give them. We see that over and over again, recognizing who God is and what God has done. And we need to remember, he says that in the middle of that section that, about the law here, that, that it was a good law for the people of God. Moses talks about this and, and even says as much in the book of Deuteronomy. It was a gift to the people. We find out that, that God doesn't keep his people guessing about how they should please him. God doesn't leave us floundering about, wondering what we should do and how we should relate to him and how we should think about him and what we should do and how we should live in this world. No, he gives us his word. And then, as the New Testament teaches us, he gives us himself to live within us, to help us understand his word and to obey his word. We should never believe that God doesn't care about us or care for us because he's proven himself to be faithful. It says as much in verse 15, did you catch that? You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. I mean, I I will never completely understand the magnificence of bread falling from the sky. I mean, you kids understand that because dinner's made by someone other than you and it just shows up there But it's phenomenal to think about this, God's faithfulness to his people, that it just fell out of the sky. It was provided for them every step of the way. There's eight statements here about God's faithfulness and in these statements of this passage, they show us the attributes of God, that he's omniscient, that he's omnipotent, that he's righteous, that he's merciful, and on and on. And then the next paragraph retells the giving of the Mosaic law, at Sinai and the preservation of the people in the wilderness and the command to enter the promised land. And through it all, God continued to be faithful to them. Then we see the response. Look at verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness the pillar of cloud to lead them in the way, did not depart from them day by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. The people of God rebelled against God in all their ways. It was both wrong because they went against His commands, and it was both ungrateful because they rejected His goodness towards them. In this verse, verses, it spells out the rebellion, their arrogance, acting presumptuously. Acting presumptuously means having a, a sense of entitlement in the midst of your sin. And they were so delusional that they were still demanding blessings from God while they continued to reject Him. They acted arrogantly, he says, as well. Stiff-necked. A refusal to listen. Stiff-necked. It's not a word we usually use in our vocabulary now, but it's an interesting word, isn't it? The term depicts Israel acting like an uncooperative mule or unwilling cow. We have any farmers here this morning? We're all city slickers. You ever been to a farm? You ever been around cows? My parents thought when I was eight it would be a good experience for me to spend some time with some distant cousins on a milking farm. It's another story. I agree with G.K. Beale. And I think he's correct in thinking that the imagery used here is used because the Levites are about to talk about the golden calf in verse 18. Did you catch that? Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt and committed great blasphemies. So Israel is described as acting just like the thing that they worshiped. Psalm 115, 8 says, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. That means we will become like that we worship. And what did Israel worship? A calf. They stiffened their neck, he says. It's interesting that these people knew, they knew very well that they were not present at the wilderness rebellion. It wasn't them specifically that rebelled in the rebellion. But they take it as their own in their confession, and in so doing, it showed their own propensity, their own awareness to their own idolatry and wickedness. You now, they weren't in the garden either with Adam. But Adam wasn't just one man, but a representative for all mankind. That's what Paul teaches us in Romans 5. All of us were there in the Garden of Eden. And how do we know that? Because we see the disobedience of Adam in our lives every day. We have ugly pieces of Adam in our soul. So what should we do this morning? Friends, look at your life. Rehearse right now in these moments how God has been faithful to you, how he created you, how he's blessed you. Rehearse all of the good things that God has done for you. Can you think through that this morning? The simple fact that he woke you up and brought you here. Clothed, you probably ate something. See, God's been faithful every step of the way in your life. Now think of the ways that you've stiffened your neck against him. Think of the ways that you've stiffened your neck against the leaders that God has placed in your life. See, how you respond to leaders in your life is a good indication on how you respond to God's leadership in your life. And yet, God will be faithful to you. If Christ has died for your sins, no matter your current refusal to obey and all that his word says, he will not give up pursuing you. He will win. He is faithful in his compassion to us. It leads to point four in his conquest of enemies. And four, to this point, the Levites have rehearsed the whole Pentateuch in these short verses. And we come to verse 22 and following, we come to the final events of the Pentateuch followed by the events in Joshua. Look at verse 22. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner so they took possession of the land of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. You brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of their land, of the land, and and they might do with them as they would. And they captured four to five cities and, and rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer." And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through the prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you do not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Friends, the reason God did not destroy the Israelites is simply because of who He is. God did not take away His presence. He did not st- stop healing. He did not stop providing and listening to them. God insisted on being true to His promise to His people even though they were rejecting Him. And God's people rejected Him. They ignored God. And they took steps to make sure that they wouldn't have to listen to God by ridiculing and killing the prophets that God would send. And God absorbed patiently their repeated disloyalty. And He continued to provide for them. Everything that they needed, God would give them. God took them out of slavery and gave them everything they could desire. And how do they respond with more rebellion? How does God not destroy them for their rebellion? How does God not destroy us for our rebellion against Him? We are the same. He doesn't destroy us simply because of Jesus Christ. See, everything pointed forward to him. The wrath of God was satisfied through the atonement of his son, Jesus. Friend, have you submitted your life and are trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Or are you rejecting Christ? and what He's done for you. Reject your rejection, friend. It leads to no good and only results in pain and suffering. You were made to be led by God. He created you for that purpose. He is supposed to be your Lord in all things. So I implore you to focus your life on him. Follow him. Follow what his word says. Follow him with other Christians that are there to help you. And you are there to help them. And set your hopes and affections on him. And give up your rebellion of him. Repent of your rebellion against him and believe in Him and find life only in Him. And in so doing, friend, you will find mercy. Verse 31, nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Our God is gracious, He is merciful. Doesn't that verse give us great hope? Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you've been saved. We did nothing to earn this. We're banking on God's mercy. We need God's mercy and so did they. And they rehearse this over and over and over again, verse 17 and verse 19 and verse 27 and verse 28, because of God's mercy, and only because of God's mercy could they be accepted and renewed and not be cut off and forsaken. And that leads into fifth, their confession. And now going through the history of their people, they apply it to themselves, Look at verse 32. Now therefore, O God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. You have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, priests and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them in the lar- large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves in its rich Yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress." This final plea here is that that God would not view all of their suffering lightly, but would come and rescue them. They're banking on God's mercy again. They haven't made that request explicitly, necessarily, but they've been plodding along this all, all throughout this chapter, all throughout this prayer. And their point is made to the review of their own history, as I said, that God is good to Israel, Israel sins, and God shows mercy. And they're asking God to do it again. They have confessed their sins all throughout this prayer, all throughout these verses. And they're coming to the end of themselves in this prayer. They're in great distress. They need God's help and they cry out for his mercy. When we see God as he truly is, not only do we become aware of our own sinfulness, but we become aware of God's willingness to save and to forgive us. Friends, if you hear it, if you're willing to listen, scripture will stir your heart as well to bring about confession and worship and that leads into point number 6 the covenant so they have rehearsed God's goodness to them and their own sin and they've asked for God's mercy and now they're prepared to make a covenant to keep the covenant with God verse 38 because of all this we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes our levites and our priests this is a conditional covenant, and we're going to cover this more next week, Lord willing, in chapter 10. This conditional covenant is made in response to the unconditional covenant and commitment that already exists between God and His people. The desire to follow through, the desire to follow God. I don't want to spoil it for you, but I will. They won't. You can spoil it. Read through chapter 13. the desire to, to obey God's word. I think this is the right response. Even though we see it and we recognize, oh, this, they're going to fail, this is the right response in verse 38. Renew their commitment to God. Being a Christian requires that we are committed to him, committed to his word, that we obey his word. We don't earn salvation through our obedience. Don't misunderstand me but we're able to obey through salvation. And we see that pattern throughout this chapter. Friends, are you struggling in your prayer life? I hear this time to time, and I've been there plenty myself, where, where sometimes in our prayer life it can just seem dry and short and altogether non-existent. We can learn something from prayer in this chapter. In fact, I would encourage all of us that if we have the time this week to set aside that we would just pray this prayer, verses 6 through 37, just just read it essentially this week and ask the same as, as we see God's people responding to God. And maybe throughout that, just remember all of God's blessings that He's given you, Re- you rehearsing what he's done in the Old Testament, but rehearsing what he's done in your life. And as you do that, friends, God will bring to your mind areas where you have accumulated sin. And the right response is to confess it, to turn from it, to ask for forgiveness. And he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I love rehearsing that verse, especially with my kids. kids. My kids sin, I don't know how yours do. I sin too, but coming to me and even working through that confession and then be able to as, as father, speak the words of the Bible to them, because it's a promise we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness and to be able to speak to them and to my own heart, God has forgiven you. What glorious opportunities we have as parents, but as Christians to our own life, I pray that that would be a, a help to us. You know, as a church, when we meet corporately, every week we have corporate prayer that we, we set aside, an opening prayer, we set aside a pastoral prayer, we're going through needs that are in our church family, needs in our community in other churches and throughout the world. We have a corporate time of praise and then worship. And the question that has haunted me for a number of years now is why don't we have a corporate time of confession? Well, I believe that needs to change and it's going to change this morning. In, in light of God's Word and what He's leading us, we're going to change the, the liturgy, our order of service, starting today. And, and we're going to end our time this morning with a time of corporate prayer of confession. Now, before you get nervous, I'm going to lead that. You can silently pray, friends. We're not going to pass a mic around. That's not what I'm saying here. We're doing this corporately. I will read a passage of Scripture that brings awareness of our sin. I will pray, and then I will read a passage of Scripture, similar to that of 1 John 1.9, that gives us assurance of pardon. Because God's Word continually does that too for us as Christians. It won't be long. Next week, we'll, we'll insert this earlier in the service, and it'll be a part of our, our liturgy going forward. So, I'm going to read a passage now, and then I'm going to pray, and then I'll read another passage, okay? 1 John 1, 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Would you join me as I pray? Lord God, we need your help, and we need your healing. We are stubborn, blind people who repeatedly and willfully stray away from you. And in our blindness, Even our ability to understand and confess our sin has been distorted. And sometimes we speak words of confession out of principle or duty or even because it's become a habit and not out of our awareness of our need. And yet Christ knows our helplessness and has given his own blood for our souls. And this blood gives us confidence to confess our sins to you and where we have failed to approach you with honest, sincere, and confident words, knowing Christ stands in our place, we can come now. And so we thank you, Jesus. We thank you that we can come and confess to you our unwillingness to confess our sins. And will you help us to live for your name's sake. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now listen to this assurance of pardon. In love, this is Ephesians 1, four through seven, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, amen.